1 Kings in the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, two Bible readings if you've got a bulletin. On the second page. Kings chapter 19 and verses 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. And then the next reference to Elisha is if we move on a few pages to one, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 18, uh, verses 1 to 18. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it be yours, otherwise not. And as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. 
and they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. We'll finish the reading there. We can pick that up again next week. Now, uh, you can see I've got a preacher's dream here. I've got two pulpits. This is fantastic. What an expanse before me. Um, we completed um, a couple of weeks ago our series on Jonah, Tales of the Unexpected. And I feel led to start a new series today over these summer months, uh, which will be interspersed with visiting speakers uh, whilst Jill and I are away, uh, on the life of Elisha. Elisha follows Elijah. J is before S, if you want to remember that. Both men of God, prophets, who declared God's word to Israel. And we read... In our second part of the reading, Elijah's spectacular departure from this earth. And now, as it were, in a relay race, the baton is passed on from Elijah to Elisha. Thinking about Elijah's departure, which we'll study in more detail next week, I came across these epitaphs to those who had departed. So in a Leeds graveyard... On a tombstone it says, Here lies my wife, here lies she, hallelujah, hallelujah. I think the man was quite pleased to have buried his wife. In a Georgia cemetery, just these words on a tombstone, I told you I was sick. <laughs> In a Pennsylvania cemetery, on a tombstone, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> and finally, in a cemetery in Vermont, here lies the body of our Anna, done to death by a banana. banana. It wasn't the fruit that laid her low, but the skin of the thing that made her go. So that poor lady had an unfortunate experience with a banana skin. Now you can go on looking through the internet of funny epitaphs. But, of course, there was no gravestone epitaph for Elijah. And that, of course, was the same as for Enoch. You remember thousands of years before, Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. So we have Enoch right at the beginning of time, as it were. Elijah departs. And, of course, right at the centre of history, some 800 years later, after Elijah, the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven, and a cloud hides him from the disciples' sight, and there is no tombstone, there is no epitaph, there is no grave for Jesus. And every Sunday morning we celebrate that Jesus is alive, that the grave couldn't hold him, that there is no tomb for Jesus. In fact, if you're thinking about stones, the Bible does describe Jesus as the chosen and precious cornerstone, the foundation for the church, for our lives. But it also describes you and I as Christians as living stones that are built together into a spiritual house. So there's no dead tomb or tombstone or epitaph for a dead Jesus or a dead church Rather, we worship and serve a living Saviour and our lives should be ongoing living testimonies 
of his grace and of his love and of his mercy. Now, where does Elijah, where do Elijah and Elisha fit in the history of the Bible? I want to give you a very, very brief history a review of the whole of the Old Testament. Well, not entirely all of it. The clue you get for these two guys is we've read from Kings, 1 and 2 Kings. So these two men lived during the period of the kings or the, mon or the monarchies of Israel. In very simple terms, if you go back 4,000 years to 2000 BC, you get Abraham. God has worked it very neatly for us in many ways. Abraham, 2000 BC, called by God. His son is Isaac. His son is Jacob. One of his 12 sons is Joseph. Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt. As a result, all the family, Jacob's family, moved down to Egypt and settled there. And the nation of Israel is really formed and grows significantly in Egypt. And it is there for some 400 years. Towards the end of that period, the nation is uh, put into slavery by the Egyptians. So God sends Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. But because of sin and unbelief, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and they enter the promised land, Canaan. After Joshua dies, there is a succession of men and women who are called the judges, Gideon, Deborah, Samson, people like that, who lead the people. And the last and the greatest of all the judges was a man called Samuel, who is appointed by God to anoint Saul as Israel's first king. And that whole period from Abraham to Saul is roughly a thousand years. So Saul becomes king around about 1000 BC. But Saul fails. So David becomes king. He's appointed and then his son Solomon. And in spite of Solomon being the wisest man on the earth, he has the most foolish son, Rehoboam who, when he becomes king, manages to split the kingdom into two. And Israel is divided in about 930 BC. The northern ten tribes, which, are retain, which retain the name Israel, they are ruled by a guy called Jeroboam, whilst the southern two tribes, called Judah, are ruled by Rehoboam. And both kingdoms, the north Israel, the south Judah, are then ruled by a succession of kings, which you read about in 1 and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. A few of these kings were godly men. Most, unfortunately, were wicked, leading the people into idolatry. And a particularly evil king of the north Israel was a guy called Ahab, aided and abetted by his wicked wife Jezebel. This guy Ahab ruled round about 875 to 850 BC. And it was during his reign that Elijah breaks onto the scene. He's sent by God to confront the evil of Ahab and Jezebel and to call the people back to God. Ahab dies in battle. 
His son is a disaster, doesn't last long, and another king, then Jehoram, takes over. And he's the guy who's reigning in 2 Kings chapter 2 when Elijah is taken into heaven and Elisha takes over. So in roundabout terms, Elijah and Elisha were on the, the scene around 800, 850, middle of that century BC. Some 70 to 100 years later, Jonah's on the scene. He turns up round about the middle of the 700s BC. And again, he's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel doesn't actually survive much longer than Jonah. In 722 BC, 722 BC, the Assyrians conquer Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah survives to around about 600 BC. But then the Babylonians invade and we have the stories of Daniel which we were uh, considering with the children this morning. Many then taken from Judah into exile in Babylon. The exile lasts 70 years. People then start to return. Ezra, Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Ezra, Nehemiah, people like that. The temple's rebuilt. Jerusalem is restored. And then there's 400 years of silence. And Jesus comes. And that is a very brief overview of the Old Testament and where Elijah and Elisha fit into that. The name Elijah, Elijah, means the Lord, he is God. And that was the essence of his message. Jehovah, God is God. Not Baal, not your idols, only the Lord is God. And Elijah really lived in days that are very similar to our own. Just to use three biggish words, we live in an age of relativism. No such thing as absolute truth. Everything's relative. We live in an age of pluralism. All religious insights are equally valid. We live in an age of syncretism. All roads lead to God. Let's mix it all up. How do we get to God? Well, you've got your ideas. We'll come along with you. We'll share a bit of yours. Do you know, Jill encountered this, of all places, this week at a Christian book club. Relativism, pluralism, syncretism. And your mission, my mission today, is to be men and women like Elijah, even though he's 2,800 years before us, declaring that the Lord, he is God. He alone is God. Elisha then comes along, and his name means God saves. God is salvation. And that's the essence of his ministry. And can you see how this... Uh, these two kind of wonderfully complement, fit together. God is God, and only he can save you. And that's the New Testament gospel message, isn't it? Believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he's God, the way, the truth, and the life. And then repent of your sin and seek forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ alone. 
So we're to be men and women who follow in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha as a double package. God is God and God is the one who saves us. But you know, as you look at the Bible, not only is there a wonderful complementarity in the Bible, there is a glorious consistency between the Old and the New Testaments. Who comes first? Elijah. Who comes second? Elisha. In the New Testament, who comes first? John the Baptist, who is described as, by Jesus, the Elijah who was to come. Who does John the Baptist introduce and welcome? Jesus, the Saviour, the Elisha figure, is coming. He follows John the Baptist. But this biblical consistency is even tighter in another way. When you reflect on the fact that just as Elisha succeeded Elijah, so Joshua succeeds Moses. Elisha comes, as we'll see as we go over these coming weeks, to bring healing. He brings salvation. He brings blessing to the people of God in order to complete what Elijah has started. And Joshua, in the same way, completes what Moses starts by leading the people out of Egypt. Joshua leads the people into the promised land to complete the work that, Elijah has begun, uh, that uh, Moses has begun. But the name Jesus in the Greek is the same as Joshua in Hebrew. And Jesus the Saviour comes to complete God's saving work by dying on the cross. Now you haven't time, we haven't time to explore all the different dimensions here. But isn't it remarkable where the handover from Elijah to Elisha takes place? It takes place on the banks of the River Jordan. Joshua crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land. Joshua effectively repeated at the Jordan what Moses had done at the Red Sea in opening it up. Elisha repeats at the Jordan what Elijah did with striking the waters with the cloak. John the Baptist baptises Jesus where? In the Jordan itself. And at that very location, in the, by the river of Jordan, John cries out two things. Behold the Son of God, behold the Lamb of God. John says, here before us is Elijah and Elisha. The true Elijah and the true Elisha. And you see, the whole Bible points forward through the Old Testament to Jesus. He is God. He is the Saviour. And then Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jill's experience in this book club was people, Christians, rubbishing the whole of the Old Testament. Amazing. Yet we love the Old Testament because it points forward beautifully and wonderfully and consistently and in a complementary way to Christ who comes. And you understand the new in the light of the old and you understand the old in the revelation of the new. Now, getting back to this, otherwise we will be a bit late. <clears throat> How is the baton passed on from Elijah to Elisha? I want to consider over this week and next week three headings, one today, two next week. Elisha is called by God to serve. And we're just going to look at the three verses that we read at the end of 1 Kings 19. 
Where is Elisha when he's called? He's ploughing. He's ploughing, it says, with the twelfth yoke or pair of oxen. And the literal wording is that the other eleven pairs were ahead of him. He was kind of following in the rear, and I guess, I don't know, but I guess they ploughed in a diagonal. One guy up the front, leading the way, and then the next one following to make sure he didn't cut over. And Elisha's at the back, following up in the twelfth way. He's clearly from a wealthy family. But this guy is not a spoilt brat. He is a worker. He's literally putting his hand to the plough. And he's working hard for his father, Shaphat. Ah, oh, can we not think of someone else who worked hard for his father in a manual occupation, who didn't act as a spoilt brat in any way? Who's that? Jesus. In the carpenter's shop worked hard for his father <coughs> can you see how Jesus and Elisha or Elisha is in a, in a way a model of Jesus now I want to identify <coughs> I think we can find at least seven aspects of God's call on Elisha first of all he was chosen without warning Elijah, Elijah turns up and throws his cloak around Elisha. So who initiated all this? Was this Elisha? No. Was it Elijah? No. It was God. God earlier on had said to Elijah, I'm sending you to anoint Elisha. This was entirely God's prerogative. It was his sovereign choice. There was no negotiation, no bargaining. God didn't wait for Elisha to volunteer or to think, well, something must be done. The uh, uh, times are tough. Let's get the tough going. I'm not quite sure what the expression there is. Well, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Yes, let's all get going on this. No, no, no. God chooses sovereignly Elisha. And Elijah effectively says to Elisha, leave everything, follow me. You're to wear my mantle, my cloak. You are God's chosen successor to me. It's a bit like how Jesus chose his disciples. There was no negotiation. There was no uh, volunteering. Jesus walks up and says, come, follow me. And they do. They leave everything and they follow him. Jesus, in fact, said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Why are you and I God's uh, servants and his disciples? Because he sovereignly chose you. Not because of any good in me. All I can offer God is my sin. But because of his amazing love and grace, he chooses me. And because he chooses us and chooses each of us, he gives us strength to follow him. I must obey his command, but he gives me the strength to obey. You know, when Jesus healed a man who'd been lame for years, goodness me, that would have taken us six months of physiotherapy to get the guy's muscles working. But Jesus creates the strength in the man's muscles immediately to respond. And that's what he does with us as he calls us he gives strength to our spiritual muscles to respond to him. Now, some Christians struggle with this whole idea of predestination and sovereignty of God. But surely we must rejoice 
and praise God for a bit for it. Where would Elisha be if God hadn't chosen chosen him, still ploughing with his oxen? Where would I be if God hadn't chosen me, still ploughing the furrow that was set by myself? God's choice is purely because of his loving grace, not because of anything you or I do. But that doesn't excuse me then from seeking to tell everyone the good news about Jesus, calling on them to repent and to believe, because that's how God works. He works through us, that the call of God comes through us to others. The Bible teaches very clearly both the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of you and I. And I can't reconcile the two with my finite mind, but God can with his infinite mind. And we must and we do cling to both. And indeed, <clears throat> the grace of God motivates, the sovereignty of God motivates me and encourages me. Because if someone becoming a Christian depended solely on me, I'd be a nervous wreck. Did I preach right? Did I say the right things? Did I say it clearly enough? Yes, I've got to do my best. You've got to be a good witness for God. But it is God who chooses and works through uh, fallen vessels for his glory. We are workers together with God. And be encouraged. Dear friend, as Simon was talking about in that song, in essence, if God has chosen you, do you really think he's going to drop you and leave you? Of course not. He's chosen you for eternity. And he will defend and guard and keep you. And Elisha was chosen. Secondly, there's covering. What happens? Well, the first thing that Elijah does is to chuck his cloak around the shoulders of Elisha. Now, Elisha had been hard at work. He was sweaty and dirty, covered in the muck of the field. And yet Elisha, Elijah puts his Burberry around him. Now, I wouldn't do that to Luke. I might strangle him with it. But, but can you see what's pictured here? I'm the sinner. I am defiled. I am dirty with the muck of this world. I'm busy with the cares of this world, getting on with my life. But Jesus covers me completely in his beauty with his robe of righteousness. So my sin is exposed no more. And instead I'm identified with Jesus and in all his beauty. And in fact, anybody looking quickly at Elisha would have thought, that must be Elijah, he's wearing Elijah's cloak. But it's not, it's Elisha, it's just he's wearing Elijah's cloak. And there is a sense in which as people look at us, they should see Christ. Because I am covered with Christ. The problem is when I cover myself with myself. Be covered with the covering that Jesus provides. And of course, as Elijah does this, he's marking out Elisha as his successor. But you and I are Christ's successors here on earth to advance his kingdom, to serve him faithfully, to help others come to know him. And because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ now, we can look forward to being part of that great multitude in heaven, clothed in white robes of righteousness that uh, John sees, a crowd that no one can count, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Can you just see it again? Elijah, God sitting on the throne, he's God, and to the Lamb, Elisha, in heaven. Thirdly, the cost. To obey God's call always involves a cost. What's the job description? What's the pay? What are the perks? Do I get health cover? No, in fact, often you get the reverse. Elisha's not given any details. And you remember how Jesus called his disciples, come, follow me. And he didn't tell them what the package involved. You're not given clear uh, benefits. The costs are, however, clear. Jesus must come first, even above your family, your finances, your future. And Elisha was prepared to leave all that behind, his wealth, his family, and follow Elijah. And Jesus will call you and I to sever all links with your old lives that would hold you back. What does Elisha do? Well, he ends up, effectively, as we would say, burning his bridges. His safety net is gone. His oxen are killed. His plough is burnt. There's no way he can go back. Some Christians seem to always want... Um, a safety net, a guarantee. Well, if it doesn't work out, I can always fall back on this. That's not God's way. Elisha, when he slaughters the oxen and burns the ploughing equipment, realises there's no going back. Do you remember the words of the old song? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And there seems to me to be no hesitation with Elisha. He says his goodbyes, and he's off. Why is he so decisive? Because he recognises God's call and he's keen to obey. Last week at South Crookham we were thinking about the man who found buried treasure and the pearl merchant who found the greatest pearl that he'd ever discovered. And they gave everything up because they'd found this treasure, they'd found this pearl. And that's what Elisha had discovered. I'm prepared to give up my career my wealth in my home. I'm going to follow you, Elijah. And Jesus is worth giving up everything for. Fourthly, confession. Now I'm using this term in a positive rather than a negative sense. Confession here is to publi uh, publicly uh, pronounce, um, to profess openly. And what does Elisha do? Well, he confesses openly that he's leaving his old life behind and he's going to follow God's call. He's told his parents, all his workmates know, the local community know, because there's a massive barbecue that all are invited to. They know he's on his way. There's no doubt. One of the great New Testament gospel verses is this, Romans 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confess with your mouth. Tell others. Do you know some of the best advice to a new Christian is to say to them, go and tell someone what's happened in your life. That's the best thing to, to do. And of course, closely following that is baptism. Because baptism is the way we openly confess to people we've left the old world behind, the old way, and we're now following Jesus. Let's clearly confess to others, like the blind man in John 9 who Jesus healed, who says to everyone, once I was blind, now I see. And fifthly then, there's celebration. 
When you become a Christian, and when you live as a Christian, God's call on your life isn't to come to a funeral, it's to come to a party, to a celebration. Jesus talks about rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's a party in the skies over every person who becomes a Christian, and there should be joy on earth too. Joy for the person obeying God's call, and joy for all the people of God. You see, all of us, believer or unbeliever, are called by God to be totally committed to him. That's the call if you're an unbeliever here this morning. Turn around and commit your life totally to Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, the call upon us is be totally committed to Christ. Most people then say, well, dear me, that sounds miserable. Well, it might be costly, but look. Here is one of the biggest open-air barbecues that you can imagine. Two massive bulls are slaughtered. This is not some hog roast that I saw at the Oval on Friday. This is a massive two-bull roast. It must have made for some party. And in the kingdom of God, there should be festivity and joy and celebration. Someone has said, sacrifice is the ecstasy of, no, of giving the best we have to the one we love the most. Yes, you give your best for the one you love. It might be costly, but there's joy and there's celebration in that. You don't do God a favour by choosing to serve him. He's done you the greatest favour by choosing you. And to cap it all, sometimes you get a T-bone steak thrown in. Sixthly, commitment. What was Elisha called by God to do? Well, the end of verse 21 tells us he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. That means his servant, his assistant. Now, hold on a minute. I'm a wealthy young man. I've got financial security, which I'm now giving up, my career, my family, my home comforts, and you want me to be a servant? Elijah, who's a wandering minstrel, his assistant? You see, God doesn't choose me or you to be a sensation, but to be a servant. Jesus gloriously said these words, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be in God's kingdom, the only way up is down. And if you want to exercise authority, you've got to submit to authority first of all. Elisha was committed to serve Elijah. And he acted under his authority. And he was clearly very good at it. Because if you get later on into 2 Kings chapter 3, someone says, oh, this guy Elisha's on the scene. And the king says, oh, we know about him. He's the one who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That's what he was known for. He didn't have a TV slot. He hadn't done a book signing. He wasn't 300,000 Twitter follow followers. He pours water on Elijah's hands. That's pretty humble, pretty humbling. And Jesus came as a servant, and Elisha serves Elijah. Finally, commission. The commission that Elisha had was unique to him. 
Elijah could only have one assistant, one servant supporting him, and God chose Elisha for that role. And God's call on your life and on my life is unique. And it can be very releasing to realise that God has called you to be you. He's called me to be me, not Martin Lloyd-Jones, not Charles Spurgeon, not Mark Driscoll. He's called me to be me. That releases me to be the man who I should be. Not always worrying what others are like or others think. And God knows you through and through and he's got a calling and a commission that is uniquely fitted for you. Let me close with the words of this song. There's a work for Jesus ready at your hand. Tis a task the master just for you has planned. Haste to do his bidding, yield him service true. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. Work for Jesus day by day. Serve him ever, fault and ever, Christ obey. Yield him service, loyal, true. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. God, you see, is calling all of us to serve him. He totally deserves my service. He deserves my total obedience. Have I heard his call? Am I listening to his call day by day? And am I obeying that call, stepping out like Elisha with great joy, following in the footsteps of Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this example, great example from the Old Testament. Elisha, hearing the call of God on his life and stepping out to serve you. And Lord, we want to be men and women who do place our feet in the footsteps of Jesus. Forgive us when we go our own ways. Help us to listen carefully. Open our ears, Lord. Jesus often said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, help us to hear and grant through your spirit strength to obey. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.